With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone. I'm Hilary Kerr, the co-founder and chief content officer of Who, What, Where, and this is Second Life a podcast spotlighting women who have truly inspiring careers. We're talking about their work journeys, what they've learned from the process of setting aside their doubts or fears, and what happens when they embark on their second life. Today on the show, I'm speaking with the co-founder and president of Primal Kitchen, Morgan Zanotti. In 2015, Morgan and her co-founder, Mark Sisson, set out to disrupt grocery store aisles everywhere with a line of high-quality and delicious condiments, sauces, and dressings, all made without dairy, added sugar, and canola oil. They launched with a single product, an avocado oil mayonnaise, and have since grown to over 70 SKUs and are on shelves at over 16,000 retail locations. But before Morgan was building one of the fastest growing natural product companies and leading it through acquisition to Kraft Heinz for $200 million, she had a variety of other jobs. After graduating from college, she worked as an accountant, but after about nine months, left in pursuit of a career she felt more connected to. During that time, she worked as a waitress at a resort in Wisconsin, surfed throughout South America, and even became yoga certified. Eventually, she returned to the United States, but still wasn't quite sure what a corporate career would look like for her. She ended up taking a job at a branding and design agency before becoming the marketing director at beverage company Kavita. It was through that role that she met Mark, and they began to chat about building a company together. Soon, Primal Kitchen was born. Morgan is so open about what it's like to launch grow, sell, and run a company, and I am truly excited for her to walk us through it all. Now, on Second Life, it's Morgan Zanotti. All right, Morgan, you ready to do this? I'm ready. So, on this podcast, we like to start at the beginning. What did you study in school? And much more importantly, what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? Okay, back when I was like, I don't know, grade school, I always wanted to be an anchor woman, but I ended up studying accounting in college. Interesting. So what took you to accounting and did you like it? I liked it. I've always liked numbers. Math was super easy for me. I went in as a psych major, which Mm. I think would have been infinitely more interesting, but there was so much science you had to take as a psychology major at University of Colorado. I went to University of Colorado and I was just like, oh, I don't think I'm here for all this science. So I kind of went the path of least resistance. And then- (laughs) I love the path of least resistance for you is accounting. That would be like pushing a boulder up a mountain for me. It's one of the things I love about this podcast is it just really reminds you that it takes all different kinds of people in this world. No, it's so true. And I mean, running a business, you're doing accounting, right? But like when I tell people I was an accounting major, they're like floored. They're like, I can't even, I don't even know what to make of that. I would never think that for you. I would have guessed like 20 majors before accounting. But anyway, here we are. So funny. So when one has a degree in accounting, I assume that one gets a job in accounting, which I believe you did right after college. Talk to me about deciding on getting a job, how that process went, and sort of first impressions of the industry. Yeah. So I graduated in 2006. The economy was still great, right? Like it was easy to get a job. I applied to all these jobs. I actually got two job offers on the same day, one as a recruiter and another as a regular just like staff accountant at this firm in downtown Denver. I was living in Denver at the time. And I accepted the recruiting position because it came with a BlackBerry. So (gasps) this is where my priorities were at (laughs) 20- 
two years old. I was like, I get a BlackBerry. This is cool. I'm going to take this recruiting job. I did it for a week and I had my first panic attack. I remember like calling one of my best guy friends, Ben, at two in the morning and I was like, I am freaking out. I took the wrong job. And he's like, okay, just call them this week and see if you can have your accounting job. So I called on Monday, the accounting firm. I'm like, did you guys fill that position? And they were like, no. So I quit the recruiting job after like four days and then started at the accounting firm. That's all kinds of incredible. I'm so glad that that position was still open for you and that you were able to make that seamless transition and also that you were able to pivot so quickly and just acknowledge like, this is not right. I mean, fix it. Yeah. I think that's something that's kind of parlayed into the rest of my life. Like I'm very quick to make change sometime almost too quick. I think when you're an opportunistic person, you can just seize opportunity for the sake of seizing opportunity. And I'm trying to like slow down and be more mindful about the opportunity seizing Well, once you landed in the proper job, in the right job, what was that like? So the proper job and the right job was not accounting. So I quit (laughs) that job nine months later. So I quit that job to go waitress at my aunt and uncle's resort in northern Wisconsin that's basically like dirty dancing. So I quit in like May, went back to Wisconsin in June, moved out of my apartment in Denver, convinced one of my best friends from childhood, who's actually Primal Kitchen's VP of marketing still today, convinced her we waitressed together at the resort. We did one long summer. We stayed through the end of the season waitressing for all these fun people at this dirty dancing type resort. And then I decided I wanted to live abroad. I convinced her to move to South America with me. So it's supposed to be a six-month trip, and it turned into like two and a half year exploration of surfing South America. And it culminated with my yoga certification in Hawaii. And I was making maybe 12 grand a year, but I was only spending like $8,000 a year living in South America. So I came home, I'm 25. My friends all have jobs, but they all have this debt. They're living in downtown Chicago. They're like spending $100 cabbing all over the city. And I think I had more savings than most of them, even though I was only maybe making like $12,000 a year. That is so wild on so many levels. What was it about South America that you wanted to go and do this? And were you feeling at all any of the like society pressure of maybe I should start thinking about my next move? Or did you just feel like I have one life and I'm going to go and do something that I want to do and this is the perfect time to do it? I think I'm a big like I have one life. We're only here for a very short period of time. So like just got to have that mentality and go for it. And that's a lot easier before you have kids when you're in your 20s. You don't really have responsibility. Big risks don't have, you know, huge consequences. But that being said, like I totally think even now with three kids, we'll for sure like pull them out of school for a year and do like a big trip or something. So my parents sent me to camp in northern Wisconsin for eight weeks when I was eight years old. So I think at like a very young age, I developed this adventurous spirit and like a love for traveling that carried on. Like after I got sick of the camp in Wisconsin, I convinced them to let me go to Colorado. And then magazines would come once you've gone to one of these camps. And then it was like, oh, you could do like this Costa Rica trip. So I convinced them to let me go to Costa Rica one summer. And I'm very fortunate to have had that experience at a young age, right? But I also worked at a really young age. I got a job like where I needed to get a worker's permit from my parents to waitress at the retirement home in like seventh grade. So I just always had a real love of working and like being around people and meeting people in new environments and new experiences, but also adventure. So kind of like a work hard, play harder mentality instilled in a very young age. Well, I think that's so amazing too, just that resourcefulness and that just like figuring it out. Those are really important skills. I'm interested in during that surf vagabond period from 2007 to 2010, what were the other skills you felt like you were developing then in this time period? I think just like learning more about myself. I learned to surf. I learned a second language. You do build confidence when you're like fully self-sufficient in a foreign country, right? So you're not afraid to talk to anyone. You learn things about different cultures. I actually got really into health and wellness kind of on that trip. I was in Colombia and I met this girl from California and she had a friend who had cancer and that friend's doctor told her about this standard process company, ironically, out of Wisconsin. They grow all their own herbs and stuff. And she was like, oh, I do this cleanse every year. So I did this cleanse when I came home and all my seasonal allergies went away and like stuff clicked for me and just how I wanted to live my life, I would say. I pretty much stopped drinking then. So I really just figured out what was important to me. I wouldn't say I learned a skill. I would say I had a lot of experience that shaped the path in which I ended up going down. That makes sense. And then I came home and regrounded myself. Okay, so let's talk about that. You 
decide to move back. And then what happened next? What were you looking for? What were you thinking about? I came home and I had like a really tough time. So I started therapy. I was having like what I call just like reverse culture shock, but just very hard assimilation back into normal life. Where do I belong? You don't feel like I belong anywhere. What do I want to be when I grow up? Like all my friends are ahead of me. And here I am like with a lot of great pictures, you know, and a great experience. I would do it over again 5,000 times, but just really feeling like I didn't know what I wanted the next step to be. I ended up helping one of my best friend's older sisters with her like backpack company. Hmm. And then I like looked at going to naturopathic medical school. I looked at being a sex therapist for a second. I was like, maybe I want to be a teacher so I can spend my summers in Northern Wisconsin. I looked into nursing. I looked into sales jobs. I just was like in this major exploration phase, but it wasn't pretty. It was a struggle. It was a lot of therapy and a lot of questioning, which I think is appropriate in your 20s. Yeah. It's also interesting that you'd spent this time figuring out who you were and things that you were interested in, but then the application of that when back in the States seemed to be a little jarring. Yeah. I think I wanted to launch my own company. Like I was researching like a clean mineral-based sunscreen company 15 years ago. And one person would say like, ooh, liability. And then I would be like, oh, I can't do this then and like throw that idea out. So it was just like a big phase of self-exploration. So what was the thing that got you through to your next job? So I, through my uncle, got this job at a small boutique advertising agency in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So I moved from Hawaii to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which actually, it was great. I had a great time there. So I worked there for two and a half years and I was managing like the growth ventures portfolio within Frito-Lay. So it was like all the Stacey's Pita Chips, organic Cheetos, Tostitos, and Lay's. It's honestly like experience I still use today, like tons of package design, setting up social media for Stacey's Pita Chips. I loved my time working with the folks at Frito-Lay. They were super nice. And then we were working with this agency on Frito-Lay. They pulled in this other agency, 72 and Sunny. A lot of people listening oh, yeah. know it's one of the biggest agencies. And they're headquartered right in El Segundo, which is super close to where I live now. So I like made up this lie that I was going to move to California. And I was like, I'm in town. Are you available Friday? But I really had no ticket booked. And the account exec at 72 and Sunny was like, sure, I'll meet up with you. Because I was thinking maybe they'll hire me because I'm doing the same thing at a different agency, I can go work for 72 and Sunny and move to California. So I was making up these just lies, trying to get meetings with people from Milwaukee, pretending I was in LA. Then if they'd agree to the meeting, I'd book a flight. So I came out to LA, met up with this account exec from 72 and Sunny. We met in Manhattan Beach. I surfed. I fell in love with California and I moved two months later. That is all kinds of wild. Also, I love that. I feel like it's very much like if you build it, they will come. And you're like, we'll figure yeah. this out. I'm going to make it happen. So at that point in time, too, like, did you feel like you had mastered the skill set that you needed in your role to move? Or were you just ready to go and looking for the jump? So I didn't even end up getting a job from them. So I had no job. I'm a big believer in creating space in between things. Mm -hmm. I feel like people feel like they can't quit something until they know what else they're going to do. But sometimes that what else you're going to do doesn't come up unless you've created the space even this applies to relationships. I feel like this applies to everything. You have to sometimes create that inner space so you can get into what's next. So I went to quit my job and my boss was like, well, do you have another job lined up? And I was like, no, I'm just going to move to California and figure it out. And he's like, well, just stay on and be remote. <gasps> so I was the only remote employee for like a year. By the way, like, do you now or did you then understand what a testament that was to you and the work that you did? Obviously, remote work and work from home was not at all a thing. No. That's major. It was good. But I was managing the biggest account for the agency. I mean, it was a little agency. I was paid like so little. I remember being in therapy and my therapist was like, okay, you're managing like a big portion of the business. You need to go in and ask for a raise from your like $42,000 a year salary, right? And I was shaking. I had like a paper printed out for my boss who loved me and who was great and took a total chance on me and I loved him. We had a great relationship and I was so nervous to go in and be like, look, I'm managing this huge account. You need to give me a raise. You know, I've been here for two years or something. So I went in, he's like, sure. <laughs> yeah, we'll give you a raise. Like, just, you're fine, you know? And I was like, okay, thanks. I think it's helpful to have therapists who push you to ask for what you're worth, especially as a woman. It's really hard for us women. It's super hard. 
It is. I think part of it is like women tend to excel in school environments, right? And I think one of the things it teaches you is like, if you put your head down and do the work, someone will come along and reward you for that. And that you're not conditioned to speak up or to advocate for yourself in the same way. And then when you do, there's all of this societal nonsense too around like the pushy woman or God forbid someone not like you with quotes. Yeah. And I think that for me, having kids actually really helped because then I started thinking about it as I was not advocating for myself, but I was advocating for my family. And the same way that like, I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm a great advocate for my friend. Like I could advocate anything for that person because it's not me. So that way, like to take myself out of the equation and think about it like, oh, this is for my kid. Then all of a sudden it feels different. I think that's genius. Okay, so you moved to California, you get to keep your job. That's great. So what happened next? So I keep my job and then I'm just feeling like I'm in LA. I want to like connect in the community here. And I was at this point pretty committed to health and wellness. I moved in with a roommate I met on Craigslist, Eddie, who was from England. He was hilarious. I had met these guys from Columbia. They were working on this documentary on health. I like helped them produce this documentary. We were interviewing people like Laird Hamilton and actually Mark Sisson now. But I was at the grocery store looking for jobs and just seeing like what's close in LA, like Palm Wonderful's here. Oh, that's cool. Zico Coconut water. I met Mark Rampola. I applied to be his personal assistant. He founded Zico Coconut Water. Then I found this company, Kavita, at the grocery store. I went on LinkedIn. I messaged like a VP of sales. I'm like, hey, I'm in marketing. I mean, kind of, right? Like, are you guys looking at anything? And they were like, yeah, we're actually hiring a director of marketing. And then I got put into the job search for this. And the woman who interviewed me was a woman, Amanda, and she works for me at Primal Kitchen still to this day. She's one of my best friends too. So she hired me at Kavita to be the marketing director. And that lasted six months. And then I consulted for three after I quit. It was crazy making. And it was up in Oxnard. So I was like commuting from LA to Oxnard, which you know is like- Not it. Not it. And it was like, look, they were sub 10 million in revenue. They structured their buyout with PepsiCo when I was there. I learned so much about retail sales and building a brand in Whole Foods and just all this like really great scrappy business stuff that was just a super cool time to be there. And then I quit that job with nothing lined up. I was like, I'm over this. I think I'm depressed. This isn't working for me anymore. We're going to quit and then we'll figure it out. And Mm -hmm. at Kavita, they were in Oxnard and Mark Sisson, who's my partner at Primal Kitchen, he had this big following in the paleo space. He's kind of like the OG paleo guy, right? He had a blog at the time, 300,000 newsletter subscribers, and he was selling supplements direct to consumer and blogging with like four employees out of the Malibu Chamber of Commerce, like a small, very profitable business for him. Yeah. Kavita sponsored this event that Mark held called PrimalCon. And I didn't need to go. I could have sent our marketing manager, but I wanted to meet Mark. So I went to the event. I ended up really hitting it off with Mark and his wife, Carrie, giving them a ride home to their hotel room at the end of the night of their event. And then we went our separate ways. I quit my job. Three months later, I'm on a trip with my now husband. We rented like a juicy van. These are like vans you can camp in. Oh, yeah. We were San Francisco to San Diego on this juicy van trip. And that week, my consulting gig with Kavita was kind of like wrapping up, right? Mm -hmm. And Mark calls while I'm on this trip. And he's like, hey, I haven't talked to you in a few months. Look, I want to launch this food company. Do you think you could help? Oh, my God. It was so weird. So I'm like, okay, this Kavita thing's wrapping up. And like next week, I'm going to go to Mark's house in Malibu and meet with him about Primal Kitchen. So our first meeting, he was like going to call the brand Primal Blueprint. And I was like, that's a terrible name. You should call it like Primal Kitchen or something like that. I'll never forget this. He's like, oh, this meeting was worthwhile. And I was like, yes, you asshole. This meeting was worthwhile before I suggested that. Like Mark is one of my best (laughs) friends, one of my most favorite humans ever, but I always give him crap about this time. He told me like, oh, this meeting was worthwhile. You just like renamed the brand, you know, and whatever. So he was just like, I want to launch this food company. Can you help? But like, what does that mean? (laughs) He really idolized Paul Newman in Newman's Own, and he was frustrated as I think this has become more of even a common knowledge thing now. But back then, this is in 2014, there was a small group of very passionate people that were really adamant about avoiding canola and soybean oil. Mm -hmm. And Mark was among the educators of this group of people. Like, we do not want to be eating seed oils. They're inflammatory. So he was like, I just am frustrated. I go to the grocery store and there's like nothing I can buy. Like I can't buy a salad dressing. I can't buy like sauce. So we had actually started working on this Carolina gold barbecue sauce or he had 
And then we were working on a mayonnaise and we were talking about salad dressings. But the barbecue sauce, we tasted it. Mark like loved this. He put it on everything. And I got the ingredient statement and I'm like, Mark, this formula is like 49% maple syrup. Like no wonder you like it. We can't (laughs) launch this. You know, this was back when everyone's launching paleo products and it was like, oh, if it has 90 grams of sugar, it's fine. It's in this form of honey or maple syrup. Right. We're good. Like there was kind of this period in time where the paleo movement was a little bit like – Loosey-goosey. Loosey-goosey, yeah. And I think just missing out on some of the macro trends. So I was like, no, we can't launch this Carolina barbecue sauce. I like killed it. And then we commercialized this mayonnaise. We just happened to find a manufacturer who could commercialize the mayonnaise. So I would say like – in November of 2014, I had been consulting for 50 bucks an hour, helping do package design in-house, like everything. And he said, hey, can you come on full time and like help me bring this brand to the market? Did you want that? Did you feel like you were already kind of doing that? I had quit Kavita and I was consulting for like a fitness company and I was building websites for people and just doing all this like random stuff. So I was like, yeah, this is cool. I'll come on. You know, he hired me as employee number one. What was your job? Everything. I had the Instagram account started on my phone. I started our influencer project. I managed our co-mans who create the product. I found a broker for us to hire to sell the product. I went to sales meetings. Sometimes when we had a sales meetings with Whole Foods and Publix at the same time, Mark would go to Publix and I would go to Whole Foods. I mean, I built out the team. I hired the first employee. I was super fortunate. We launched a business within a business. So we actually never raised money. This is crazy, Hillary. But Mark and I owned 95% of Primal Kitchen at the time in which we sold it to Kraft Heinz. This is very rare in the food industry. In any industry. In any industry. Yeah. We ran a super scrappy operation. So the first year, I hired no one. We launched in February of 2015. We were in Whole Foods that like May with one product, with the mayonnaise. For our audience, on the off chance that they do not know, why this mayo? Why was it cool? We were the first people to ever do avocado oil in a condiment. So all of our sauces, dressings, toppings, all of our products are dairy-free, gluten-free, soy-free, but everything is made with avocado oil and olive oil. But yeah, our mayonnaise was the first commercialized condiment made with avocado oil instead of canola or soybean, and we had no sugar in our mayonnaise, which is totally a thing. I don't know why, but there's sugar in everything. So we just had a super clean avocado oil mayonnaise. And you decided to launch with one product? One product. Everyone would tell you, like, don't do that. You have (laughs) terrible shelf presence, right? You just have this one skew. But we sold out our whole first run online. So talk to me about launch. So you launched online and then did you work with Thrive or what came first? Thrive Market was launching at the same time. Mark invested. I didn't invest. I had this chance to invest in Thrive Market before they launched. So you can imagine. But I had no business really like doing that type of investment. But I did buy 2% of Primal Kitchen. So Mark allowed me to purchase 2% of Primal Kitchen for $60,000. And then we sold the company for $200 million. So it was a good use of my very limited funds at the time. But yeah, so Thrive Market, we had a great relationship with them. And they came to us and said, hey, could we exclusively launch your mayonnaise. And we're like, oh, let me think about that. Sure. Because Mm. nobody else wants it, right? We went to market in a unique way. We said, this is a product we want to make. Tell me how much it costs. And they said it costs X to make. We said, in order to have healthy margins on this business and be able to stay in business and not be running just some sort of company where you just constantly have to re-raise money, which is what a lot of people fall into, right? We have to retail the product for $9.99. Either people will buy it for $9.99 and we have a true business or they won't and we don't don't have a business, but let's find out. What a stress test. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, you know, it wasn't super stressful. Like Mark was employing me. Our first run was 18,000 jars. So, you know, I don't know, maybe it was like under 50 grand, right? We were like, we just hope we can sell this out in the first year because we had a 12 month shelf life. And the thinking was that you would sell it online through social to his following of 300,000 newsletter subscribers. Yeah, to Mark's following, we already had like a supplement store set up. So we threw the mayonnaise in there. We sold it to Thrive Market and they sold it on their website. We were super fortunate. They had hired a bunch of PR to launch Thrive Market and they used the exclusive mayo thing and part of their PR pitch. So we got all this PR for free. And I started this Twitter campaign called Hold the Canola, like hashtag Hold the Canola. And we gave away like 100 jars out of our first run. And I can't remember what I did, but it was something like if you hashtag Hold the Canola, 
allow pick 10 people a day to send this mayonnaise to when we launch. And someone was annoyed on Twitter about the hold the canola hashtag. And I was like, I've made it as a marketer. Like I have annoyed someone Mm -hmm. with a Twitter hashtag. So anyway, that was my moment. But we seeded the product with influencers before anybody had influencer on their LinkedIn profiles. We were very early in that game. What made you do that? Because in the end of the day, it's really just relationships and people that make things happen in business. And I think it's so easy to lose sight of that. But so I just like knew there's this thing happening on Instagram and like we need people to talk about this. So let's go to all these people. Mark's inspired a lot of people to be bloggers or, you know, paleo spokesperson. So we had like this army of people that we could talk to who really looked up to Mark and were thrilled to not be making their own mayonnaise anymore. So it was a win, win. Okay, so you launch online, you launch with Thrive, soon after you secure a deal with Whole Foods, and you guys ended up doing 1.7 million in sales that first year with one skew? With just the mayonnaise, yeah. That's a lot of mayo. Yeah, it's a little easier when your mayonnaise is $9.99 versus like $3.50. But yes, it was still quite a lot of mayonnaise. We were accidentally operating like just-in-time inventory the entire first year. Like we would run the product and I'd be like, this will last us six months. And then it would sell out the week before we were running again. And then it was crazy. We got into Whole Foods in the Rocky Mountain region. Now Whole Foods is a little bit different, but back then you could sell in regionally. Mm -hmm. And there was a guy, David Woods, the buyer in the Rocky Mountain region who – was a big fan of Mark's. He's big into CrossFit and the whole paleo movement. And he heard about the product from Mark's blog or whatever and reached out to our now broker and said, can you bring this product in? Well, ironically, I had applied to use this broker and they had rejected me because we were like little, right? And he went to them and said, hey, I want to bring them in. Like you guys got to rep them. So they reached out and I was like, oh, funny, you guys didn't want to work with us. And we're now like their biggest brand. We still work with them today, like, you know, five years post Kraft Heinz acquisition. I just tease them. They're great people. But anyway, so we needed that little in to get into Whole Foods. So it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing with CPG. You need like a distributor, you need a broker, you need your own salesperson. Yeah. Can you walk me through that? Because I didn't realize that brokers were involved. I only know about brokers with real estate. Talk to me about the infrastructure around like the things you need in place. Yeah. So like I said, it is a chicken and the egg thing. Like you need a distributor. Like there's two distributors of the natural channel, UNFI and Kehi, who you sell your product to and they deliver to Whole Foods. Very rarely are you going direct and delivering your product to Whole Foods. So like UNFI delivers to Whole Foods and then they deliver to like all the natural and little independent stores. Kehi delivers to Sprouts. So you need a distributor for sure. When you get into Whole Foods, when you get accepted, they automatically pull you into UNFI. But sometimes you can't get into Whole Foods, like the category reviews in nine months, but you want to sell to the mom and pop grocery stores. We had to make a list of like, okay, we have 60 grocery stores who will carry us. Take that to UNFI and say, will you stock us so we can sell into all these little mom and pops? Because you need a big volume of stores who are going to like turn on distribution, if you will. And then a way to get into 65 mom and pops is to have a broker. You could technically not have a broker, but I can't think of anyone. I'm like, oh, get rid of your broker. You just need it, especially in the natural channel. They're in the store all the time for you. They have the relationship. So anyway, we got the Rocky Mountain Yes, which opened up UNFI distribution for us in one region, one UNFI warehouse. And then we could go sell because we were in that warehouse. We could then go sell to all the other natural grocers and all the other accounts that are in that like Colorado region. And then we just kind of expanded from there. We were like, okay, we turned on Rocky Mountain. Okay, we went and we got SOPAC turned on. And then, oh, we're in the Pacific Northwest. And you just are like playing this game of when can we get distribution turned on so we can really grow this thing. It's tough. I hear that. I also feel like, though, it allows you to kind of stress test the business and to totally. have like healthy growth. I mean, I just think it would be so daunting to be like, hey, and now you're nationwide. It's like there are a lot of flaws yeah. that can get kicked in. Like if there's a supply chain issue or a packaging totally. issue or whatever it is, if you're doing it region by region, then in theory, whatever catastrophe could happen would be mitigated to at least just one area, not the whole shebang. Yeah. Okay, so you were doing so many things. At the same time, are you guys thinking about additional products? What was that timeline and world like? Because sure, like you're all in, all focus. This is an unusual product. It's first of its kind to market. It has this great traction and people are liking it. But you also know you can't just be a single product company. Right, of course. So before I hired anyone else, in the end of 2015, we launched avocado oil, 
honey mustard salad dressing, Greek salad dressing, chipotle lime mayonnaise, and a bar line, a dark chocolate almond bar, one skew. So that period of time in running the business, I was a mad woman. And we launched in all these categories. I mean, avocado oil is still one of our top selling SKUs today. We still have our honey mustard and our Greek salad dressing. We have discontinued the bar business. But it was good learning and it got real crazy. So that March, I brought on Anna, our first employee, who moved to South America with me, who I've known since I was a baby, who we worked at my uncle's resort together. What was the goal of hiring her? Like, what was she going to take off your plate? Well, Anna, she had worked at Toro, which is a lawn mowing company, and then she was in communications at the University of Minnesota. But I knew Anna's just like an amazing, high energy, super awesome, positive person, super organized. We complement each other really well, and she hated her job. So I was like, I have a solution. Just come consult for us on the side while you're doing your other W-2 job. And then once Mark and I are ready to hire, you can come do marketing for us. So that's exactly what happened. So she came on board. Did it feel like things changed having another brain in the mix? Yeah. I mean, I was like answering every Instagram comment, right? So just handing over social media stuff, handing over the influencer packages. She's super organized. She's really strategic. She's wonderful. Was like such a godsend for me. And then we brought on a sales guy six months later, and that was also life-changing. And then what did that give you time to free up and focus on? I mean, product development, managing the co-man. We needed to like figure out what products we're launching next. Now we have one SKU in five categories. Like, what are we doing? You know, so there was a lot of like fire drills just to put out on like a daily basis that I couldn't delegate. So the stuff I could delegate, I just needed to. Bringing on the sales guy was really life-changing because then you're not traveling to sales meetings. I love being in a sales meeting. I love sales. But the travel is like really hard to be going to all these customer meetings and then try to run the business on the side. Mm -hmm. I've left one person out that I should mention. So when I met Mark, I was working at this fitness company, Mad Dog Athletics. They're headquartered in Venice. They own a bunch of fitness businesses. And the COO there was this guy, Rick Wallace, and he is phenomenal. So he hired me at Mad Dog Athletics and then he left. I went to work for Mark and I connected him and Mark and he came on as, he was a consultant too. He would never come work for me full time. He was like, you know, kind of sunsetting in his career and he's like, I'll consult and help you. But he was consulting for us like 30 to 50 hours a week. But yeah, so he came on and he was kind of like the trifecta. Me, Mark, and Rick really like ran the business. But I was super lucky. Just like all these people who hired me in the past, I hired. And the Anna friend thing like continued on. So like my best friend in LA manages the Target account. Anna's best friend from college manages Amazon for us. One of my best friends I played soccer with growing up, she still works for us and she manages like natural sales on the West Coast. I mean, it's very much a family affair and still is. Five years after an acquisition to a major strategic company like Kraft Heinz to still have like your whole team in place is literally unheard of, like unheard of. It sure is. So how is the business doing at this point? Because we're still in year zero to three pre-acquisition. Yeah. Did you know that an acquisition was on the horizon? How were sales going? Did you feel like everything was moving in the right direction? I would say I felt like we had champagne problems. <laughs> like you're selling too much product. You can't keep product in stock. You you know, have an inbound of customer service questions, just like growth problems, which I will take any day of the week over like we made this thing and no one wants it, right? So we did have certainly a lot of just like scaling manufacturing, yeah. building the team. You know, it wasn't all like sunshine and roses and best friends from childhood. There was definitely like some hires in there that weren't the right hire and building out your team, finding your people, like your manufacturing partners, your broker partners, that's the hardest part at the beginning. So we had all of those issues for sure. But the business, you know, we did 1.7 million. The next year we did 13. The year after that, 26. The year after that, 50. Whoa. 1.7 to 13? Yeah. Dang. With no marketing budget. With no infrastructure. (laughs) And no infrastructure. I mean, we still run half the company in Google Sheets. I'm not going to lie. But yeah, so it was scrappy. Like it was super scrappy. But, you know, we had a product that didn't exist and people wanted and we applied the same principles to other categories in the grocery store. Like people don't want canola oil in their mayonnaise and they don't want it in their salad dressings either. And guess what? They also don't want sugar in their salad dressings. Like it's not rocket science, right? So sometimes the biggest things are just the simplest things. So at what point did you start realizing or thinking about acquisition on the horizon? Because it happened in year three. That's very fast. It was, as you mentioned, $200 million. Amazing. 
Also, that whole thing went down three weeks after you'd given birth. Yeah, yeah, it was crazy. Talk to me about the ramp up to acquisition, because as someone who has gone through an acquisition herself, there's so many variations out there. Yeah, no, it was crazy. So we knew from day one, or I should say Mark knew he wanted to sell the company. And he told me when we launched, if we could just grow this thing and sell it for $30 million, I would be happy. <laughs> and then the next year, he's like, if we could just sell this for $100 million, I'd be happy. And then it was like, if we could just sell this for $200 million, I was like, okay, slow your roll. <laughs> but so it's so hard in food to make any money. Margins are really low. They're even lower now. Like the inflation was crazy, you know, cost inflation last year for us. So it's really hard to scale without raising money unless you exit. And we were looking at it like, okay, we can go raise private equity money. I have a lot of private equity friends that I met through this whole process, but we're going to end up owning 50% of our company. Mm -hmm. Maybe we're going to sell it for $500 million, but 50% of 500 million isn't all that different from 95% of 200 million. And this is hilarious because it's 2018 and we're like, oh my God, the world could go crazy. Like this election, like we don't know what's coming. Let's just just get out and get the help while we can to really grow this thing before we risk our valuation down the road by staying in it and trying to keep bootstrapping it like we are. So we hired a banker, Romitha Malley, who's amazing. We actually interviewed all these bankers. They're trying to pitch your business. For those of you listening, like when you go to hire an investment banker to sell your company, you go out in the marketplace and a bunch of people will bring their team in and they'll put this ridiculous 200-page deck together and they come in with their suits and they tell you like, think we could get X for your company and they're going to take a percentage of the sale. So they're trying to win your business, right? And they were just like, Mark, we'll fly you out to meet with the companies. This is how the process is going down. And I remember Rick interrupted and he was like, no, you'll fly Mark and Morgan out. Like, what don't you guys understand about this? Like, they could not wrap their head around even acknowledging my presence as like a 33-year-old young female in this more like leadership role in the sale of the company. So we ended up putting the whole thing on pause. I was like, we're not hiring any of these people. I just feel like as a woman, I've been bullshitted by men my whole life. So I'm just kind of like, yeah, no. I don't believe anything you say. I know you're just like the big wig at the top of the company and the real people who are doing the work are like at least one to two layers below you. So give me the real people making shit happen. And even today, like if someone were to approach me on like a partnership thing, I would be like, I don't know. You got to talk to Anna. Like that's the truth. The further up you become, the bigger your business becomes, that just happens. So anyway, we put the whole process on hold and then we were fortunate enough to meet Romitha in the spring and she had sold by to Dr. Pepper Snapple Group for $2 billion. She had sold this pet food company, Blue Buffalo to General Mills. She was an analyst early in her career. She sent sold Vital Proteins, Orgain. I mean, huge deals in the food space. We're her by far tiniest deal. But we met her and I was like, well, this is a no brainer. Like we're sitting in these other meetings. Like, these guys don't even know what they're talking about. I could do their job better than them, you know? And so we hired her, we kicked off a process in June and it all kind of culminates in this management presentations, which is basically all the people who have in writing expressed very serious intent to purchase your company. They've put a number on paper. They're invited to these like final meetings. We did ours at Shutter's Hotel in Santa Monica. We posted up there for a week. People flew in from all over the world. We met with different groups of people. I was 32 weeks pregnant, presenting in these eight-hour meetings to sell the company. And then we ended up moving forward with Kraft Heinz. Why Kraft Heinz? I think we had the most synergies with their business. They were very upfront on like, we want to leave you alone. And, you know, you guys just keep doing your thing, right? And I was kind of like, okay, but are they really going to? Like, I was pretty sure they'd fire me in January of 2019, right? I keep saying like, I don't know. Like, haven't you guys realized I don't have my MBA? I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I can't even build a PowerPoint presentation to save my life. I swear too much. I don't know what you're doing still keeping me here, but here I am. So I think synergistically, like from a, the most amount to like add value, they were the clear winner for us. And some of the folks in our final bid were private equity. So, you know, you can structure those deals any way you want, but we wanted to go more of like a strategic route and not the private equity route. So it made the decision like pretty easy. It's nice when that happens. Yeah. Okay. So it closes. Did you have a sense of like, I'm going to stay? Maybe I'm not. What's going to happen? You have a baby. Like, <laughs> this is a lot of change all in like a very small amount of time. Yeah. 
I had a three-year non-compete in all of food and beverage, and we had an earnout on the deal. So ah. we had a little bit of cash to be made on the upside, but mostly it was a cash deal, but there was an extra like $30 million potential on the 200 on the upside. So we were very incentivized. And when I say Mark and I owned 95% of the company, like I own a very small portion of that 95%. Okay, let's be clear about that. Mark was like, I'll just like double your equity percent for the earnout because he's like, I'm retiring. I'm good, right? I want you to be motivated to, you know, earn the earnout out. So I'll do that. And I was like, great, then I'm going to bring in some folks on the team, like some of the senior leadership team to help us get to that next portion of payout. So we did end up getting some of the earn out, like 10 of the 30 million, which is also very unheard of. So that was great. So I was pretty motivated to stay. And I think also we were only three years into our journey. So like I get all this judgment now, like I cannot tell you, Hillary, the number of people who say to me, you're still there. They're like, what are you doing? Industry people, they're like, I can't believe you're still there. Like, how have you not gone on and like, founded another company or how are you not running some other bigger company? I'm like, God, the pressure. I've since had two more kids. So I have three boys under the age of five. Dang. Yeah. So I mean, I just keep popping out babies, having maternity leave and the businesses continued to grow and they took all the stuff that sucked off my plate, like the legal stuff, the HR stuff, the quality stuff. You know, we don't have to worry about any of that stuff anymore. And so really I get to just do like the fun part of running the business, which is like sales, marketing and innovation. That's what I love the mm-hmm. most. So, but yeah, the amount of judgment I get on people who are like, what are you still doing here? I can't believe you're still here. I'm like, God, is one not enough? Do I need to go do some other like huge thing? Come on. Like it's too much. I just feel like if you still see runway, if you still see blue sky, if you still see opportunity, if you still feel like you're learning and growing, that's the most important part that doesn't have to happen in something new. If you don't feel like any of that's happening or it doesn't feel like a fit anymore, that's a totally different thing. Yeah. So now you have over 70 SKUs. Is that right? Yeah. So how do you think about newness? How do you think about product development? How do you know what categories to consider? And have there ever been any situations where you're like, oh, I think we should jump on? Nope, just kidding. We're not doing that. I think that we have really evolved the way we think about category growth. We went really wide pretty early and we kind of sold the company on this idea like we're a lifestyle brand. Like Primal Kitchen could play in a lot of places and it could, right? The brand could launch kid snacks and I don't think anybody would think that was like out of the ordinary. I would love it. (laughs) Yeah, right? Some of our competitors don't have that luxury. Mm -hmm. So that gave us a lot of freedom. But with that, it's like, you know, entrepreneurs, you just say yes to everything, right? It's really hard to be disciplined when it comes to like, innovation Mm -hmm. and stuff. But we've really, really, really honed in on focus and what we want to be when we grow up, if you will. So I would say we're making fewer, bigger bets. So historically, you can get in this like, you know, some buyer at some account suggests you launch something, right? And then you launch it and it like does great, but it's like, okay, it's going to be maybe a million dollar skew. Well, our business is approaching 200 million in revenue. We don't need another million dollar skew. We actually need 10 $50 $50 million SKUs. That's what we need. So we're trying to make fewer, bigger bets as an organization. And that creates focus and that's easier on the operations team and it's just easier on everyone and it makes more sense. I think there's more value in being five $50 million SKUs than there is in being $100, 2000000 million SKUs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I mean, they just think about all the energy that you're spending. Yeah. And furthermore, like imagine this, okay? Imagine it's 2018. I go to sell the company. The worst thing that could have happened is our bar business took off. Imagine this. We go to sell the company. We're 50% mayonnaise sales and 50% bar sales. Who wants to buy us? Nobody. Which is something that I don't think people, why would they really think about as much? It's like, not only is it building a business, but it's also building an exit plan and building a focused business that a future acquirer could seamlessly take in without having to break it into pieces or they only want to pay you for one part of it and not the other part of it. I mean, having diversified business is great in some ways if you're going to stay independent forever, but not if you have a specific plan for acquisition. Totally. Look at like some of the biggest, most successful exit in the CPG industry. You've got like Vital Proteins, like their blue bottle Vital Proteins is still by far in a way their number one skew. They've launched all this other innovation, but I think probably I'm making this up. I don't really know, but I would imagine 60 plus percent of their sales is their one plain collagen peptides. 
RX Bar, super profitable business, exited for $600 million. They never raised money, I'm pretty sure, because it was really profitable from the dates, but it's like they just stayed focused on bars. There's a million things you can do, but they didn't. They were focused, and so it's just much easier to wrap it up with a bow and execute really well and know what you are when you stay focused, which is something we didn't do. (laughs) I give this advice to other people, but we really didn't do. But I think when you're young enough, you can take some risks like – But like Vega, you know, the company Vega, Mm -hmm. they're known as like the vegan protein, right? They exited. Their first cue was colostrum, (laughs) very much not vegan. So they had to like decide what they wanted to be when they grew up a few years into the business, exit the colostrum side of the business. They probably walked away from a ton of revenue, focus down in this plant-based space and, you know, go from there. So I always like remember that story just because you can make mistakes anytime. But But if you have like some brand focus and direction and you're all rowing in the same way, then that actually can get you somewhere. Yeah. It makes everything easier. So talk to me about 2024. Talk to me about 2025. Talk to me about the future. Like what are you thinking about? What excites you? What keeps you up at night? Personally or in the business? Both. I mean, look, I'm raising three boys. So like that keeps me up at night. Just like, am I doing this right? What school are they going to go to? Like all those just parenting things. Not much is keeping me up at night right now. You know, I'm almost 40. I'm kind of like, what will be will be. I used to be so much more emotionally attached to like business things and all of that. And I think just the more reps you have and the more mature you are in your career, you're kind of like, okay, we can roll with it. Let's figure it out. But I'm trying not to be like, the pendulum swinging one way and the other so much. So, and I feel even like with each kid, much more relaxed. Less reactive because you've seen it before because I'm like, oh, oh, the market's contracting. I've been through this now three times. I know that you have to double down here and wait it out and it's going to be fine. And that's actually when growth and innovation can happen in really interesting ways and things are not the end of the world anymore. For sure. Yeah. And also when you have a really healthy business, that helps too. (laughs) Yeah, it does. (laughs) Is there anything product-wise that you can tease for 2024? Give us some hints. So I'll just tell you guys that we're launching. I'm super excited about this, but I don't know if anyone listening is familiar with the like Chick-fil-A skew. That's Chick-fil-A sauce. Chick-fil-A put their sauce in a bottle and it's kind of blowing up. Mm -hmm. Like it's blowing up on TikTok and it's doing really well in the grocery store. We're launching a series of dipping sauces (gasps) that kind of sit next to that. So like we have a chicken dipping sauce. That's our healthy version of a Chick-fil-A sauce. There's like a special sauce. It's more like a burger sauce that's coming, a yum yum type hibachi style sauce. And I'm just like so so excited about these dipping sauces. I'm thrilled because with dips so often, I'm like, all I can taste is the sugar. And don't get me wrong, I have a sweet tooth. I love cake, but I want thoughtful sugar, not secret sugar. Totally. That's exciting. Okay. So I like to wrap up the podcast with the same three questions. So everyone makes mistakes in their career. Not everyone talks about it because As you know, we live in this Instagram highlight reel where we just talk about successes. And while success is great to learn from, I think that whether it's just normalizing that things don't always work out the way we intended or just talking about the fact that there are outcomes that are not just sunshine and roses, that helps everyone. So I'm hoping that you can tell me about a mistake that you've made at any point in your career and what you've learned from it. I want to write a business book called Everything I Needed to Know About Business I Learned in Bed. But I think in (laughs) dating and in relationships with employees, like you always end them six months too late. There were people that were not the right fit who ended up making like mistakes in the business that cost us that I hung on to because I couldn't have a difficult conversation. I couldn't just be like, this isn't working. We need to figure out an exit plan for us both here. I remember just being like, Mark, can you just call and fire so-and-so? Like, I can't do it. You know, like I still really struggle with formal feedback and formal conversations. I'm much better like direct and in the moment and casual. So I think not ending things when you know you need to end them is a mistake I've made. Yeah. So a lot of the folks who listen to this podcast are in their first lives. They are interested in making a pivot, trying something new, taking a leap, all things that you have done many times with great success, but they're scared. They're a little bit nervous, whether it's financially worried or they don't necessarily believe in having space in between projects or jobs, but they want that change. What advice would you give someone who's just standing there sort of on the precipice, but hasn't made that leap quite yet? 
I think a lot of people don't make the leap because they think they need to have like their whole lives figured out, right? Like you don't need to know what you're going to do for the rest of your life. You just need to do something next. Pick something, decide you're going to do it for six months. And if that doesn't work out, you'll figure it out. But just try something else without the pressure of this being the end all be all. And like, I don't think you ever need to worry about too many jobs on your resume. You're going to find your people. Like Mark never even looked at my resume, right? Like you put yourself out there enough, you're going to find your people who are going to appreciate the way you live your life. Craft Times would have never hired me, right? They would be like, she has no Ivy League education. She jumps around jobs a lot. Like corporate HR would look at my resume and be like, this chick is a nightmare, right? But I would have never been happy in corporate America. So like, I think if you live your authentic life, you will attract what is authentically right for you. So you just got to keep doing you. And if it's not working, make a change. I love that. So my last question, also my favorite question, which is, if you could go back in time and speak with your younger self, younger Morgan, at any point in her career and give her a little advice, what would you say? I would say go to the weddings, stay scrappy, treasure the relationships. When things felt too stressful, I would like say no to friendship things that like I just wish I would have done, right? Fill up your tank. Yeah, fill up your tank. Like go do all those things. You like have the wedding season of life and then it's over and then everyone has the baby season of life. Like throw the baby shower for the friend, plan the costume party, like do all those fun things that sometimes as like a type A entrepreneurial person, you can just put off because you're so focused on what you're trying to achieve in life. And like when our house, I say, my husband is the king of the little things to my queen of the big things. I can get really lost on like the big picture vision and forget to just like turn music on in the morning. Like Adam wakes up and he turns music on every day and the whole energy of the house shifts. So I think you got to like really treasure the small things and nurture the relationships and just do the little things that are actually the big things. Those are actually the important things. Well, I love it. Morgan, thank you so much. This is such a pleasure. I wish you all the continued success. Thank you for sharing your story. This is really, really fun. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That was the co-founder and president of Primal Kitchen, Morgan Zanotti. For more inspiring interviews with women like Morgan, head on over to secondlifepod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you like today's show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us. We love seeing you spread the word on social. And now you can tag us in your posts. We are at Second Life Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We always want to know who you're interested in hearing from on the show. So send in your requests to hello at secondlifepod.com or you can DM us on Instagram. I'm at Hillary Kerr. The show is at Second Life Pod. Our DMs are always open. I'm Hillary Kerr, and you've been listening to Second Life. This episode was produced by Hilary Kerr, Summer Hammeris, and Natalie Thurman. Our audio engineers are at Treehouse Recording in Los Angeles, California, and our music is by Jonathan Leahy. 